Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is engineer Jesse Ray Ernster. First of all, Deezer has a new royalty plan that they're going to roll out next year. Now, why is this a big deal? Well, it breaks from convention for most streaming services, and many believe it's going to be more fair to most artists. And here's why. Right now, artists are paid on a market share basis. So in other words, there's a percentage of total royalties based on a percentage of total plays across the service. And what that means is top artists get paid a whole lot more than artists that don't have as much going on. So in other words, the more you're played, the more you get paid. Whenever you see these figures from Deezer or Spotify or Apple Music or Pandora and see the figure of how much they're paying out per stream, it's always a big, big average. To some degree, it's a guess because there's so many variables that goes into it, and we've covered this here before in previous podcasts. So what's the Deezer plan? It's something that they call User-Centric Payment System or UCPS. And what that means is, if you're paying $10 a month, and all you listen to is Bruno Mars the whole month, Bruno Mars gets that $10, the whole entire thing. The way it is now, it doesn't matter whether you listen to Bruno or not. Most of your plays could be someplace else, but if Bruno has a big hit, he's going to get that money. Now, if you think of it like this, just pick out an indie artist, and it doesn't matter, a small artist. If you listen to them exclusively the whole month, and you're probably not going to do that, but just imagine if you listen to that artist the entire month, they are going to get all of your $10. So basically, whatever you're paying is going directly to the artists that you're listening to. And that's not the way it goes right now. All of your money, all those subscriptions go into a big pot. And there's a pretty intense mathematical formula that figures out what each artist is going to get. Spotify actually has that formula printed on their website. You have to dig pretty deep for it. And really, if you're not a mathematician, you're probably not going to understand it anyway. So this is going to be a pilot program. It's going to be in France only. And you'd think, why doesn't everybody do this? Well, apparently it's a lot more difficult to do than you would think. And it's going to cost a lot to implement. That being said, Deezer thinks that they have a way to do this for not a whole lot of money. They now have 40 small labels that are signed on, including most of the French labels. Deezer, of course, is a French-based company, even though they're owned by Axis Industries, who, by the way, owns Warner Music Group. But the good thing is, everybody thinks this is going to be fair in the long run. It may get rid of bot fraud, and it will make the charts more accurate. So keep your fingers crossed that this actually gets implemented and gets implemented quickly and it goes across all the streaming networks because it's better for the small indie artists. They'll get paid exactly for the number of streams that are going on rather than getting paid the way they are right now, which isn't quite as fair as it should be. If you have any questions or comments, send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, 
Get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now here's some interesting facts about the SM58, the Shure SM58. And if you're in the music business, you know what that is. If you're a musician, you ever played in bands, you've probably owned some SM58s. I pretty much can guarantee it. It's been a standard for more than 50 years now. But it wasn't always that way, surprisingly enough. SM stands for Studio Microphone. This was originally made for television, believe it or not. And the reason why is up until that time, most studio microphones, especially from Shure, were silver. So the lights would flash off of them, and it was very bad for TV, especially during those times. So the SM58 is made of a dull gray finish, so there's no lights that are flashing off of it. There's no reflection at all, so it works great in the studio. That being said, the television engineers really didn't take to it at all. And it didn't sell for the first four years that it was actually in production. Sure was actually going to phase it out, except for one thing that happened. One of their salesmen decided to take it to Las Vegas. And Las Vegas, up until that time, would have the artists, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, all of those guys, those uh, the Rat Pack guys, and just anybody you can think of that was a famous entertainer from that period of time. They would basically stand on stage in the theater, and there was a large diaphragm microphone that would be sitting in front of them. And that meant they couldn't roam the stage whatsoever. They had to worry about feedback, and it just wasn't working. The SM58 actually was an answer to their prayers because now they can get a reasonably good sound and they can walk the stage and everybody was a whole lot happier. Now, speaking of the sound, what's interesting was they were trying to make a flat response microphone. They were trying to make it as flat as possible and failed badly because in fact, there's peaks at 1K and again at 7 and 8K and then it drops off pretty severely after that. That being said, it turns out this frequency response was perfect for voice in a live situation. So all of a sudden, the SM58 catches on in Las Vegas, and then Shure does a really smart thing. They send their technicians out there to fix all the microphones for free. They then had these extensive workshops, how to fix the microphones. They gave them new diaphragms. They did whatever they had to in order to establish themselves in Vegas. And they knew they actually had a winner. When they came out with a new mic called the SM59, they gave it to Frank Sinatra, who threw it on the ground mid-show and basically said, get me an SM58. And at that point, it started to become the legend that we know it as today. Now, we think of the SM58 as being the same over those 54 years now, almost. But in fact, there's been anywhere between 40 and 50 changes over the years. The reason why wasn't so much to improve it, but the mic actually outlived its suppliers. So suddenly, some of the components weren't available, so they had to make changes. That being said, those changes are never made public, and the reason why is the SM58 is one of the most counterfeited microphones on the planet today, and they don't want anyone to actually figure out what that is. Now, obviously, you can get a microphone, you can buy a microphone, you can open it up, and you can see, to some degree, what the components are. But that being said, the Shure SM58 
still is the grandfather of all stage microphones. And even though there are some new ones that are really good that have come out from sure competitors, it's still the one that you can always rely on for a good onstage sound. My guest today is engineer, mixer, and composer Jesse Ray Ernster, who grew up in a musical family with both his parents playing in bands and making records. Jesse's entrance in the music business began at age 16, touring with several artists as a lead guitarist and vocalist, but he then realized that his true calling was being in the studio, creating music from the ground up. Jesse originally paid the bills by scoring for TV shows like Ripley's Believe It or Not and indie films, but his big break came working for Kanye West. That led to working on two albums by Nigerian star Burna Boy, including the huge global hit African Giant. During the interview, we spoke about learning Pro Tools and engineering from his dad, working in Uganda with Kanye West, the unique workflow for mixing the Burna Boy album in different countries, and much more. I spoke with Jesse via Skype from his studio in Los Angeles. I want to go back to the beginning for when you get started in this business. You're from where, Oklahoma? Uh, Minneapolis. Minneapolis. Ah, okay. Well, that's a good music town. Uh, absolutely, it is. A lot of culture there, uh, leading from Funky Town all the way through to the, through the Prince era. And, uh, and then there's a lot of underground scenes that, that don't really get as much notoriety uh, across the country. But yeah, it's a fantastic city. Uh, originally, f- I'm from Winnipeg, and my parents met up there. My mom was a part-time nurse and a songwriter traveling back and forth to Nashville. And my dad was coming through town on tour, playing lead guitar in a band and MDing. And they met, and the molding of the musical minds uh, led to the conception of this guy, I guess. And I had a strange musical upbringing from there on out. Uh, we moved down to Minneapolis, grew up there. Uh, dad was doing the MDing and playing thing, uh, but then became an early adopter of what was called what sound tools or sound designer at the time, and adopted an early Pro Tools rig into the house, and the recordings began. And he began producing, and I was sort of uh, a mouse in the corner, just learning, absorbing all the information that I could, and then eventually assisting and learning to do some editing with him as well as eventually making records together. And uh, yeah, it was beautiful, learning a lot. And as you know, that was a time when a lot of uh, things were changing in the industry and a lot of techniques from going from analog recording to digital, those types of mediums were changing and yeah, a lot of excitement. Well, that must have been especially fun to work with your dad like that I know a lot of people that grew up in a musical family or, you know, electronics-oriented family, even have, you know, musicians that are successful as parents, but they don't often work together. Usually there's a split, so that's kind of cool that you managed to do that. Absolutely, and it was invaluable. I'm always sending him mixes still and trying to take aspects of his productions that I really admire and, and kind of achieve those, but... As with everybody, even though we shared some DNA and we share taste uh, in great music, it's, it's a lot of his techniques don't work for me and vice versa. So we're, it, there's still this competition going on, even though he's like retired from music now and he's just making music kind of on a fun hobby level, which is another beautiful thing. Uh, we're still sending stuff back and forth. And, and we played together in bands for a few years as well. And yeah, it was special. And I made some records with my mom too. She's a... Mm. Uh, Christian gospel artist, I guess is how you would put it. And so we made a couple records when I was 
kind of beginning to cut my teeth and learn about production and and around that time i was doing a lot of like country albums and uh some college acapella records and a lot of just strange music that doesn't have a lot to do with what i'm doing now but i feel like the fundamentals that i uh kind of lean uh got to you know i'm able to reach for that stuff now how did you get to los angeles uh, my wife and I, well, then girlfriend, now wife, we decided we were going to begin the pivot to uh, a new location that would be more fruitful in the music industry. The, the scene in Minneapolis was kind of dying out. Uh, at the time, I was running the studio and teaching at a music school called MMI, Minneapolis Media Institute. And, oh, this is probably a decent time to show you. Uh, we taught with these. Uh. <laughs> some of your course materials <laughs> the stuff's great man oh and thank you i love those books and held on to them when the school closed that was the old uh flight time studios which was jimmy jam and terry lewis's room ah yes right uh, back to the minneapolis culture like they did all the the female gods of the 90s so alicia and and you know Janet Jackson. Toya and Whitney and Jatney. Yeah, yeah, they all came through and it was amazing. Um, but as the school closed down and it's the local scene had support was just going down and down and we realized we were going to try to make a change. So it was either Nashville or LA and I love LA and yeah, we made it happen. We came out two years ago now and it's been amazing. Did you have gigs when you came out? No, we kind of came out and hit the ground running. Uh, Stella works in on the corporate side of things. She has a real job. She's a recruiter in the HR world. So she landed a gig with a consulting firm out here. So right away we were comfy enough to where my days could be freed up to run around, network, take meetings, take gigs, and just try to build some things. And we were able to get it up and running pretty quickly. And it was good. Um, I did keep mixing for my remote clients back in Minneapolis and that that kind of helped keep us above water for the first few months till things sort of got up and running here. What was your first client out here then? Are you a staff guy at Bad Habit now? Yeah, I don't even know if that would be the title, but that's the role. Uh, it's me and one other guy, Jeff Ellis, who was also a fantastic human and amazing engineer. He did uh, the Frank Ocean stuff and the neighborhood. And uh, yeah, he's like our senior mix dude. And I'm kind of the new guy coming in and... Yeah, between the two of us, we do we cover a lot of the roster's work, and Bad Habit is is a label that's a joint venture with Atlantic, and uh, there's also a lot of independent artists on the roster as well. And the the music is great; people are great. It's a family. How did you get the gig? So, the story kind of goes back a little bit to rewind. I met them after I got back from a trip engineering for Kanye West's last fall in Uganda. And that came about because he came into the studio when I was subbing engineering for Tyga uh, last fall and Kanye came in and it was just this amazing night. Tyga and I were tracking, there was this great flow and he was playing us some of the things off of his album, Yandi. And I just thought all night, I was like, oh, I gotta try to work with this guy. I've gotta say something, but I don't wanna get fired from the gig. Uh, so finally, after four or five hours of just working up the courage, he left to go use the restroom. And I just got up right after him and I followed him down the hall. I pretty much cornered him at the end of the hall. 
uh, which was risky. I was afraid I could either get fired or get punched in the face. But uh, I just said, hey, man, uh, I would regret it forever if I didn't tell you that I'd love to come work for you if you ever need somebody. And uh, he said, okay, yeah. And they flew me out to Chicago a couple of days later and we started engineered for that and we flew out to uganda and we were recording in the safari atmosphere it was an amazing experience and then suddenly we all went home and it was a wrap and i wanted to kind of leverage off of that and i had been introduced to an artist on that trip uh to his music i should say i didn't meet him yet but i had been turned on to the music of burn a boy mm. so i got back into the states he's this nigerian superstar and he is under this label called Bad Habit. Like, who are these guys? So I hit them up and told them what I had been doing and that I learned about Burner Boy. And we got together, we got working and been really getting to know those guys and gals. And it's a family now. It's We're all hustling. Let's go back to the Kanye project for a second. So then you went to Africa and what were you recording there? Uh, mostly just tracking vocals and organizing Pro Tools sessions, backups and working with uh, the four or five other engineers we had on that trip. Amazing guys. We had several different rooms set up, um, indoors and outdoors. And there were a lot of artists that came on that trip too. And I don't know that I can say too much more about that, but it was for uh, the Yandi album, which is still not out yet. Yeah, okay, I get it. I get it. Uh, um, <laughs> then you get back and you start to work with Burna Boy, right? Yeah. Yep, we began work on his EP with a group called DJDS, and it was four songs. And that was sort of his, as far as I'm concerned, his introduction into the uh, Americas, into the uh, this nation's market. And then uh, that was great, and we kind of built up this rapport. We had our workflow back and forth as far as notes and kind of what sound he was going for. So then going into this next record, The African Giant, which was like his serious debut in the States and internationally as well, um, we kind of had our workflow established, which was really helpful and really good. Which is what? What would be the workflow, just out of curiosity? Uh, yeah, it, it's amazing. <laughs> so he has traveled around the world working with these different producers and all these different guys in Africa and different guys in the States, different guys in the UK. And him and these producers and writers put together these songs. That's 20 songs on the album. And then ultimately it was up to me to reach out to all these guys and put all the pieces together and get all the stems for all these songs, which can be very difficult. <laughs> I have learned. And we put them all together. I mixed the whole album here in just my room. And then we... Ultimately, they wanted to wrap the album in a room together in the UK. He, so he said, bring all the mixes out. Let's hang out. Let's just sequence it. Let's play through. We'll make our notes and changes there. And then we'll space out the album and get kind of the gapless fade, uh, crossfade thing happening on the, in the master. Uh, so I thought, oh boy, I have to really quickly get my hybrid you know, sessions that are tied up in a lot of hardware, including the mix bus out to a studio uh, across the pond and somehow have everything recallable and quick. So we had to get really clever about that. So with running everything through the SSL bus compressor that was on the mix bus, we had to basically print stems one instrument at a time while side-chaining the compressor from the sound of the entire mix. <laughs> it was like four to five hours per song. So I was sitting here for about five days printing 
20 songs worth of stems. But once we got out there, it was instant. We were able to do everything offline bounce. So whenever he had a note, you know, we would make the change, pop the session open, and then dump it into our sequence layout, which that would be where we had all the songs. And yeah, it was it was amazing at that point. Uh, and very educational. Where did you go in England? Metropolis. So we were right in London. And do you know about Metropolis? Yeah. It, amazing. Uh, incredible. And incredible rooms. Remarkable staff. Uh, some of the most helpful assistant engineers and and the runners and enter everybody uh, they were really knowledgeable and really helpful and kind and i think i can just say that in general about everybody in that part of the world it's just it was amazing over there i used to work over there quite a lot i'd go there two three times a year i'd go up to manchester a lot at the time but i always enjoyed it it was always fun i always loved the english people in general that we just had a a great time. I still do have a lot of UK friends. Unfortunately, I don't see them often enough, which is the problem. But, you know, it's one of those things I have to say, you know how you get friends that there are only a few of them that you don't see for a long time. And then when you see them again, it's just like yesterday. Like no time has passed at all. <laughs> and it seems like that with most of my UK friends, more so than Americans for some reason. I can't put my finger on why, but it, it does seem to be like that, at least for me. Absolutely. There's something in the water there. And this kind of leads back to a question that you asked that I didn't answer, uh, which was who was one of my first artists that I worked with when I got to LA. And it happens to be a guy named Phil Simmons, who is an amazing writer producer who I did see while I was in the UK because he is from London. So when we were there last month, I did get to visit with him a little bit because he's having a, a stay right there before right now before he gets back to LA. But uh, yeah, he's one of those guys, just one of those like completely genuine amazing human beings with a big heart and the biggest brain of a pool of talent for throwing flavor into songs that that i've ever experienced um so one of the first projects that we did was his uh triple disc album the chronicles of saint ark by phil simmons and it's amazing it was a concept record everything flowed song to song so we really dug in and he gave me a lot of creative freedom to kind of take the mix places uh, that he might not have thought to go and maybe he didn't intend to go. And so, yeah, we were, we took it to another level. It was really collaborative and that jump started several projects that he began producing for artists here in LA and that I would be the mixer on. So we have been building this relationship for a while. And I, I yeah, I do want to touch on that because it's, it is so rare to get projects where you get to get creative as a mixer now, because I feel like a lot of it is just uh, match and improve and enhance the rough. Everybody's always after the rough. And when you find those those types of creators who are open to allowing you to, to dig in and add something, it's, it's special and it, it gets fun. You know, what's interesting about that is um, it may be different again with the artists that you're working with, but I never listen to the rough at all unless there is something very specific that needed to be listened to. And the reason why it was like, well, it's too easy to chase your tail on it. Mm -hmm. And you might miss something that might be going in a particularly great direction. And when I speak with a lot of my contemporaries, it's split down the middle. A number of people say, I never listen. And numbers say, oh yeah, I, I have to listen to everything. I want to make sure that I get it exactly right. So I guess there's no right way to do that. But you have to have the freedom from the artist to say, yeah, you know, do your thing, which... That's less and less these days, I think. 
Uh, definitely. Uh, what I found, at least with within the last couple of years, is I'm punished if I go too far out <laughs> of the box. Yeah, because something happens. Something special happens when a song is created. And as soon as somebody, an artist finishes tracking a song nowadays, there's a, there's a party, there's a celebration, there's a listening party that happens. Almost like, yeah, we're signed off, we're done, it's ready. And uh, then they, they become attached to that. Yeah. And psychologically, there's something that happens where I, I feel like they're just, if, if they hear a version that, that strays from what that was, you know, what that embodied, it frightens them. And whether it be wrong or right, yeah, it, it tends to be. So I just request in the stems now, when I know it's going to be that type of project, I'll try to like communicate with the artist ahead of time. Like, are we really digging the rough? Should we, do we just want the rough, but maybe just a little bigger, wider? Or some, you know, and they'll tell me. And if that is the case, I, tr I ask for the stems to be delivered sounding exactly like the rough. Like yeah. print and process everything, yeah. if that's what we're going for. And I'll just make some, we'll kind of stem master it at that point. And we'll get some automation and we'll get things, we'll get moving. I'll just move some faders and and we'll do it that way. Sometimes that's all it needs. Like I did one last week where they truly loved the vocal EQ. I did not at all. And there was a lot of harsh things I, I would have, you know, taken out of there. But they just wanted some more excitement. So I just took the drums and just kind of pumped some things and, and got the speakers pushing air like in tempo. With the, I was just m manually pushing attack and release with faders. Uh, with my mouse, of course. I don't have faders here. I'm in Pro Tools. <laughs> yeah. That was the technique, and, and that was really fun, and they were really uh, quite satisfied with that. Tell me about your room, because I see lots of analog gear there. Yeah. I love analog. If the someday goal is to have a nice big uh, SSLG, like a 4000G+, plus, or the 6000 with the the extra busing but uh yeah for now we're doing the hybrid setup with pro tools i um got old 1176 a rev e the overstayer jeff terzo stuff is ridiculous i love it 1178 i can't find anything that does that uh ssl bus comp and the clarifonic greg scott is a good friend of mine now uh we've gotten to know each other uh, over the last year and amazing dude he also modified a distressor for me and it's like the coolest distressor ever and that lives on like the 808s and low end when i'm doing like hip-hop and pop it's just like oh. what's different about it it's really opened up and not like i i don't i want to be careful with what i say because it's it's not an inherent flaw with the original design but there is sort of a a snarliness to me like three four k kind of a yeah it just it gets a little nasally and this one is just feels high fidelity, opened up, mm -hmm. uh, cleaner in a way. Mm -hmm. And I have a Jim Williams one too. That's kind of the same way. And both of them have different mods and the distortion modes are even cooler now than they were before. So even though it's cleaner, it's like a dirtier sound too. And yeah, I love those. They're cool. And so I just run everything as hardware inserts. And then when it comes time to wrap a mix, then print everything down, print to stems, do all that delivery. And then the 800 versions of each mix that the labels ask for, of course. <laughs> what are they asking for from you? Final mix, final mix reference. So loud, mock master, final mix TV version, everything except for a lead vocal, uh, final mix instrumental, uh, stems, acapella version, unprocessed stems, 
all of the sessions printed down to where they can be opened accessible and photo screenshots, documentation of settings of hardware and or other plugins that may not be recallable. That makes sense. Yeah. So everything that could, they would maybe need to, to open up the project in 15 years. <laughs> You're lucky though, because there's still a bunch of mixes that we used to have to do that you don't have to anymore, which is vocal up, vocal down, guitar up, you know, solo up, solo down, all those things. Or if there was one particular instrument that was driving everything up, down, you know, and it would be up half dB, up one dB, down half to, you know, just craziness like that. It would just take forever. <laughs> but thankfully now we could do that in a flash, just on a recall. Well, it's harder for you <laughs> when you have analog gear there. I don't ever touch the gear though. Uh, for like a couple of years with this setup, I would reset everything at every mix and I would just, you know, kind of go for it. And mm -hmm. I found that these pieces of gear have sweet spots and it just made sense to me to just leave everything and do it like the CLA way, if you want to call it that. And yeah, and then I just drive in. I'll use like a trim plug in and just like decide how much gets in there. And I have a buddy and he has a separate analog signal path for each element of the mix. So he has a separate signal path, which is EQ compressor for snare drum, if he can get it, or drums, and then bass, vocals, another one for guitars, and his mixes sound like a million bucks. Um, but, you know, again, he could have bought a console for all the outboard gear that he has. It's pretty much the same thing when it's all said and done. Is he letting Pro Tools do the summing then back in, or is it all summing before it leaves that outboard? He'll even go to tape sometimes. That's real hardcore there. Yeah, that is. I was forever obsessed with getting a tape machine because that is an aspect of recording that I completely missed out on. Uh, like my first recording experiences were like on cassette tape with like a dual boom box recording one to the next and then just going back and forth and learning that you could distort it and make it really cool. So I always wanted tape until I got the Crane Song Phoenix 2 plug-in. Originally, the Phoenix one, and then the two came out, and it's just like, I don't know. I, I don't know. It's, it sounds amazing. I don't want anything more than that. I don't know. If it, it's different, but it's, it's great. I never had that, oh, what would you call it, glorification of tape that other people have. I used to hate the sound of it. Interesting. What about it? Well, because you get a great sound that would be coming off the console. You're monitoring directly off the console. Mm. It would go through the tape machine. It would sound different. And I go, uh, wait, it was sounding great. Why does it sound different coming back? So, you know, when I look at that, it's like, eh, I don't know. I, I don't think I want to go back to that. <laughs> but that was me. No, that's incredibly frustrating. And I think that that is pretty common among the guys that were actually there doing it. Because yeah. that is a seriously frustrating issue. Like, I find the minority, like, I find the minor issues about, like, uh, doing a mix uh, on and using the monitoring section of, like, a Neve, like, 80 series or even, like, a, an SSL. Like, the way that that colors the sound is enough to change the translation, let alone being in a, in a different room. But, like, I can't imagine having that type of thing. I think the people that really want the tape are, like, the younger cats that, like, maybe weren't around to, to learn about those really tough times or calibrating one. Oh, God, don't even talk about that. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I tell a story. Uh, three, four years ago, I did a complete analog project, and it was desired by the artist. So we went back to tape, and it was the biggest pain in the ass. 
<laughs> and I'll tell you why. We're used to really working on our impulses when it comes to digital. Need another track? Uh, there it is. You know, another take? Nah, no problem. It's not like that with tape because especially if you're working with a band, in this case it was a blues album, we record down. Okay, so now you have to wait until, you know, it winds back. <laughs> okay, so that's no big deal. It's, it's two minutes and maybe that's better. But you get a band that's hot. It's, okay, let's go to another take. Oh, wait, six minutes song, five minutes of tape left. So it means you have to go find another reel, put it on. It's 15 <laughs> minutes until, until you do it, and everybody's kind of cooled off by then. So there was that, and then, you know, the track factor. Oh, let's do another vocal. Oh, wait a second, we can't. So I looked at that, and I thought, oh, you know, I don't get it. And for the so-called audio benefit, I thought it was insignificant. Now, yeah. that being said... It was kind of a minor hit. It went to number two on the Billboard Blues charts. So one might say, well, wait, maybe that's something to do with it. And I can't refute that, to be honest with you, but I didn't think that the the complications were worth the benefits. Right. For whatever it's worth. What monitors are those behind you? Uh, these are the Amphion 118s. I have exactly the same ones here. Oh, nice. Well, what are you powering them with? With an Amphion 500. Nice. Awesome. I tried that amp. Uh, I am using, and I've got to just bring the camera down for this because this thing is the best. I don't know if you can see it. No, definitely can't see it. Uh, anyway, it is a Pacific Innovative Designs, which is, sorry, I'm putting this thing back up in this mm -hmm. holster. Uh, Pacific Innovative Designs uh, amp by a guy named Ralph Skelton. And he's been a tech in the Valley forever. Yeah. And he is amazing. We've become really good friends. Uh, I began bringing him amps and old outboard and stuff that when it would just break down, uh, he would assist with that. And then he told me he's been like building amps for a while and researching like the best optimal cabling. So he turned me onto this Cardis cabling and Cardis copper and mm. all of these little tricks to just get the highest fidelity response and the lowest resistance within the signal path. So like the Cardis cabling is like wound to the Fibonacci sequence and it's, <laughs> it's, it's crazy. It's a bunch of silliness, but the sound is undeniable. Like I brought my wife Stella in here and a bead a few different scenarios. We set up some blind tests and, and she was like, dude, undeniably that one hmm. a is better. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's what I thought. Um, yeah, this amp is great. And I love the ambience. I always thought that there was fake magic, you know, when it came down to cabling and stuff like that. I've since been convinced that, you know, there is something to it. I go for that as well. Yeah. I mean, and it's all about what you're trying to achieve. Yeah. Uh, for me and the inherent issue that I was trying to hunt down and solve uh, with Ralph's assistance was that the top end of my mixes was not translating exactly. And I was getting a pretty common complaint uh, note back on a lot of different projects that was like, oh, we need the t you know, we need this difference in the top end. And because of the either a combination of the distortion and the resistance or whatever it might have been, uh, a lot of it was dirty power. When I got this house, uh, we had to get the studio onto its own 220 circuit to, and that really cleaned things up. Yeah. Um, 
but it'd be, all of those things kind of helped the high end reveal itself to where I wasn't needing to overcut the mids and things weren't mucked away. And, and I really am doing a lot less in the mix now and it's translating better than ever. And clients are happier because I'm not like, they're not getting something back. That's just carved away at, and they're not getting frightened because it doesn't sound a lot like their reference that they were after. So that's, that's been helping a lot. Do you use a lot of plugins? Yeah. I use a lot of different plugins, but I'm not one of those guys that'll have like 10 in a row on every track. It'll usually be an EQ. Uh, a lot of the time I'm reaching now for this, uh, the SSL from Brainworks, like the Dirk one, the E channel. Yeah, yeah. I love that. I'll yeah. use that followed by like a fab filter. And that's kind of in my template is just to have like my, my boosting one and like my surgical clean one. And then, uh, I'm using a lot of these Kush plugins now mm. uh, from Greg Scott because that stuff is really cool. They've got this new one called the AR1, which seems like it's, I think it's based on like an old Alltech or something, but it just does mm. this distortion. It's just gooey. It's so cool. And then I'll use the Phoenix. And I've got a few other plugs that I like, but Soothe. Soothe is a cool. Are you hip to that yet? Yeah, yeah. God, that gets, Sugar. that one gets uh, addictive. Sugar? Yes. Is another I good don't one. have that. What, what's the deal with that one? It's boost only. It's five different frequency bands. Oh, I know what you're talking about now. And there's something to it. You don't have to add much, but it really works. You know, again, I'm kind of against those type of things, and I'm a less is more guy, but that being said, th this does something. You can overdo it very quickly, so you have to be judicious, but you have to with all of them when it's all said and done. So that's no big deal. What are your, some of your favorite plugins? Fab Filter, that's taken over for me for a great number of things. But UAD, I like UAD plugs, so I use a fair amount of them. But fewer since I, I really dove into Fab Filter, I think. Got you. I've been meaning to ask somebody who has UAD. I do not. Uh, do you have the Ditronics Tri-Stereo Chorus plugin? Yeah. How is that? It's, it sounds really good. Is it like the real thing? No, but you know what? It's close enough, and I think most plugins are sort of like that, where mm -hmm. if you can get 90 to 95% there, it's still pretty damn good. And I think yeah. the majority of plugins are sort of like that. But, you know, again, it does this, does this thing that not many others do. It's just a different sound. It's sort of like, you know, when you get a harmonizer and you use the, the harmonizer, it, you know, you can't duplicate that sound any other way. Mm -hmm. A harmonizer is a harmonizer. So uh, this is very similar in the way it does its chorus. The harmonizers and like the clones of that in the plugin world, like you've got your, the sound toys one that does like a little micro shift and micro shift. Yeah. I feel like they don't get the softness in the mids, like those old, like the old H3000 had, like it was, it was like soft and wide and, and just analog chorus in general. I don't know what it is about like what, what kind of distortion is happening in there with those filters, but it's just like, oh lushy limited bandwidth too that was the whole thing that there was not a lot of high end the same thing with the early reverbs i remember there was one i and it's never been recreated but it was really big for a while it was a quantech and i think quantech was it was out of europe someplace and it took la by storm everybody had to have a quantech and it was all over records for a while in the early 80s the reason why it was, I think there is a version of it now I think about it that came out, but the reason why it was so desired was it was 16-bit or 14-bit even. There was no high end to it. 
<laughs> for reverb that's actually kind of desirable oh absolutely i'm always low passing around like 3k or yeah or even down to yeah i don't want the consonants and the s's like freaking out and trailing all over the place and yeah. so the quant i haven't even heard of that the quantech was like the hot commodity at the moment in the early 80s oh yeah one of the things that everybody liked about it there was a big problem with reverbs when you took the decay all the way down to zero or as, as low as it would go and they would boing and they'd crap out and it'd be sound metallic and sound awful and this is especially in the early digital units but the quantec was clean so everybody used it for rooms and for um, you've heard it in, on tons of records where you, you take a, an emt plate and you turn it down to you know as low as it will go didn't sound like a room, but it didn't have a lot of decay either. So it was a very unique sound. Yeah. Start Me Up, Rolling Stones is the one that comes to mind right off the top. Oh, there you go. But that being said, the Quantic could actually do that and would sound pretty good. So that's what a lot of people used it for. Gotcha. I remember seeing somewhere recently where someone came out with the plug-in. They didn't market it very well, so it came and went. But uh, it's something you might want to keep a lookout for. I absolutely will. Quantech. Yeah. What challenges are you facing? Oh, well, <laughs> uh, always a, an obsession with gear and uh, a long wish list <laughs> and a, uh, an empty wallet. No, no. Honestly, I, I've, I feel like I've achieved a great work-life balance mm. and I'm I'm beginning to make stronger connections between what I want to hear in my head and being able to achieve those results uh, with action and formulative action to to achieve those kind of sonic things I'm dreaming up. So that's that's been really exciting and inspiring. So honestly, I've been just having a lot of fun mixing. <laughs> you know, you mentioned before something about how you would shoot mixes back to your dad, and you said you both have different approaches. Yeah. What would that be? How would you describe your approach compared to his? Yeah, he is, uh, it's a difference in the top end. And yeah, so he's an Avalon guy. Like he loves the Avalon stuff. And I did not for a really long time. Like he loves like the 737 and the stereo version of the 747, which I always giggle because we just argue about it. Um, but he kind of turned me on to the 80-2055, which to me has just the best top end ever. Mm. And that's on everything. I've actually been using the Acoustica plug-in. It's called Amber 3 uh, on pretty much everything. Like, I'll put it on the lead vocal, and then I'll put the exact same one like, on the master, and they'll just turn them all up. And it's just like, it doesn't even change the top end so much as I feel like it helps sort out, like, the mid-range, it's, it's the most bizarre thing. Uh, the Clarifonic kind of does that same thing, one of Greg's things. But uh, my dad, to go back to that question, he, he kind of likes a, a hardness to the top end. Like, he, he, he's a little aggressive and, uh, with that top. So, like, he'll use the 747, and that gets him this kind of, like, scratchier sandpaper top end in, like, a pleasing way. It actually sounds incredible. But I'm, I go for more of the soft rolling hills open spacious top end like uh, i want it really smooth and i'm really particular about that i i don't know if i would chalk it up to my particular frequencies that ring in my ears because of like tinnitus but i hear like 
specific really error areas around like 6k 9k 11 12 and then the octaves of those so it's like it's really painful to listen a lot of the time so i I get really specific in like taking care of those areas my dad's just like no man rock and roll get those in there that's music (laughs) and i'll get like way too surgical do you use the mog eq4 by any chance with the air band yeah i don't i i have been wanting to try it though pretty awesome well, yeah, but it sounds like something that you would dig, especially for the high end. And it's interesting because it goes out to 40K on the top end. And I think there's also a sub band that will take it down to 20. And I talked to Cliff Mogg about this. I said, oh, eh, humans don't hear out there. He says, yeah, but it's not that. It's actually looking at the octave below where it's actually really doing its most. So it says 40K, but it's actually like 20. And then when when you're on the 20K, it's more like 10 that it's working Mm -hmm. on. But it does add air. It adds something up there that's, you could call it EQ, but you could call it openness, something that's you can't get any other way. And the interesting thing is, he designed this, it's a four-band EQ, but he designed it around the sound of a C12. He was the engineer for the Mormon Tabernacle Choir for a long time, and and Osmonds and in there. And they had a good mic collection, and he began to think, well, why does the C12 sound so good, and the other ones, other microphones don't? What is the difference? He chalked it down into four different frequencies, which is how the, the Mog EQ4 came out. So it was made essentially where you can put another microphone in, and it won't sound like a C12, but you'll get those characteristics, more of those characteristics if you use it but the big thing was the high end which you know that's what we all love about those microphones there's something (laughs) about that high end that you know you you can't duplicate any other way and but the eq fork and kind of sort of get you there so that is amazing yeah i I didn't know that that (laughs) was the inspiration behind the design for that yeah not many people do and i didn't know either i I had him on the podcast and we began to talk about it and he he was telling me all this okay yeah now now i get it so it it might be worth checking out absolutely and not to mention that if somebody came along today and were to like pick up on one of the hot mics of today's era which in the world i'm living in right now it's the sony c800g like that's that's the mic everybody wants to use. For me, it's a 251, like a really old 251. That's the best thing ever. Uh, but if somebody were to come out with a plug-in that's like, this will make, yeah, this will give you the four bands that will make it. Crazy. Well, you got virtual mics, which are kind of sort of in that realm, if you want to think about yeah. it. You know, like Townsend and all that. They will get you there. I mean, you take that raw signal and, and then you'll dial in whatever you want. So in a way that's there, you need the raw signal to start with, but... Yeah, are you hip to Audio Test Kitchen yet? No. Uh, open up your web browser if you if you're available. If right. you got the computer there at the studio, yeah, and go to audiotestkitchen.com. And this is the brainchild of Alex Owana, who used to be a Finnish king. You may know him through that. Uh, you may know him through a lot of shootout videos that he did on the internet through Vintage King and with Warren Hewitt. Um, but this is a compa- comparison engine that has 220 large diaphragm condenser mics. Huh. And they're all up there in a really cool, easy-use uh, engine. And the way that we did it, uh, I was a part of several of these sessions from the last two and a half years, uh, watching this thing just come up from nothing. 
Uh, it's amazing. And their, their workflow and their techniques that they use involves laser pinpointing uh, the mics into the exact same position with the diaphragm on every single source and minimizing, minimizing variables at every step in the game. So when you're comparing, you know, something on the acoustic guitar or the bass, uh, different mics, it's, it's the exact same performance every time. So they had to go through stages of finding different reamp sources to make like a surrogate vocal source to spit the same vocal mic, uh, vocal performance out every single time. And I'm giving a horrible sales pitch, but this thing is amazing. It's really, really cool. Uh, I would love to know what you think about it. Uh, well, I'm going to check it out as soon as we get off here. Yeah. That sounds very cool. Last question. Sure. And if you listen, you know what it is. What's the best piece of business advice that either you learned along the way or somebody imparted to you? Any business is all about relationship building. Meaningful relationships with like-minded individuals that you click with. And that is how the disease spreads. <laughs> the good one, of course. Uh, yeah, making friends. Get, uh, get out and do what you do and do what you do it well and believe in it and do it with other people who are you know, feeling the same way and who can put forth the exact same energy. And I think everything comes together after that. It's just mm, everything that has happened to me so far has been the result of uh, great friendships and nurturing those friendships in a genuine way. It's I, I know we all know those guys who are floating around and wanting to know what they can take uh, rather than approaching life with the attitude of like, what can I, what can I give? What can I offer? What, you know, how can I help? Mm -hmm. And I think that that is the, uh, hopefully that you either have that attitude or you don't, but hopefully it could be learned or, you, you know, people could, we all just want a better place to live. We all want a better earth where everybody is thinking that way and becoming more compassionate and loving and caring and ultimately making better music uh, so we can all just absorb better and better media and have better lives. You can find out more about Jesse at jessieraymix.com. That's jessieraymix, all one word. Com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, where you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, and Radio Public. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts to new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.